Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so, Father, we pray as we open your word, would you reveal all that you've given us? Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We pray that he would receive all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a true believer, Satan hates you. That's the way that Joel Beakey begins his book, Fighting Satan. He hates you. He hates this church. He hates your marriage. He hates your children. We have an enemy. That's what, if you were here last week, we looked at. That enemy, as John Blanchard wrote, is a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy. He can outlive the oldest Christian. He can outwork the busiest. He can outfight the strongest. And he can outwit the smartest. And that's why we're studying Ephesians 6 these three weeks. We have to understand that we are in a battle individually and as a church. And as we've sang so powerfully this morning, we don't need to be afraid. We need to be aware. We don't need to be afraid, but we need to be aware. We need to be aware that Satan hates you. His desire is to destroy you, to... uh, He knows every trick in the book. His agenda is to kill you, that you would not follow Christ fully, that you would retreat from serving him. And collectively, he loves to destroy churches. He hates that Grace Fellowship Don Mills exists. He really hates that. He hates when there's unity and love in this church. He hates when God's word is preached. Satan would like to bring disunity in the church. Satan would love to see you divided. He would love to see you drift from the word. He would like nothing better than to shut down this church and every other like church in our city. So that's the bad news, but uh, that's what we looked at last week. Paul is just saying, guys, you need to realize that we are in a battle, that There's far more going on than we just see at this level. There's a whole spiritual world that we need to be aware of. But here's the good news today. So last week we talked about the reality of the spiritual battle. Uh, Today we're going to look at the resources God has given us. Next week we're going to look at how to put on the armor that God has given us. God has given us resources for the battle. You and I are aware in Ukraine right now that there's a battle going on. One of the great problems is that there are not enough resources for the battle. Uh, They need more artillery. They need more equipment. Well, the good news is, in our battle with the evil one, we are very well resourced. There is nothing that uh, God has withheld from us. We have everything that we need. And so like in Ukraine, we are sitting in a really good condition because he has provided us an abundance. We are more than prepared for the battle. And because of that, we can stand and prevail. What we have is very effective armory. We, don't, we do not have, like, is this really going to work? Like, is this what actually God has given us for this battle? What God has given us is amazing. And so today, that's what I want to look at in this passage before us. Now, a lot of commentators throughout the years, a lot of preachers have noticed that 
Paul describes the six pieces of Roman soldier uh, equipment. And a lot of commentators have noticed over the years that as Paul wrote this, he was probably in very close proximity to a Roman soldier being in prison. And so it might have been Paul's writing this letter and he looks up and he sees a Roman soldier and he's like, oh, that'll work. But however, what we often fail to notice is that Paul is, of course, steeped in Old Testament scripture. And it's amazing to see that Paul is drawing on the Hebrew scriptures as he describes this armory. So it's not either or, it's both. Paul's looking at the Roman soldier going, wow, look at that. Look at that helmet. Look at that shield. But he's thinking of the book of Isaiah in particular, uh, some of the Psalms. And he's drawing on that resource to say, look at what God has given us. And so there's a whole layer here of, as we think of Isaiah describing this equipment, most of which he's pointing to the suffering servant, which we know now as Jesus. This is equipment that Jesus himself has used. And this is now equipment that Jesus gives us that we can use as well. Now, I have to caution you, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, this week I was working on this sermon saying, what in the world was I thinking? I thought I could do this in three weeks, right? Week one will be really, you know, like this is a battle. Uh, next week, I think is, this week is like, what was I thinking? When I studied preaching, uh, one of the professors I studied under said, the hardest thing by far to preach in the Bible are lists. Well, today we have a list of six uh, pieces of equipment to put on. So right away, okay, this is the hardest thing to preach. I'm going to be giving you tons of information this morning. One, two, three. Uh, four or five. I've combined two of them for the sake of, I think, just the limited resources that we have today and for a theological reason as well. But I have to also tell you that in 1655, the Puritan minister, William Gurnell, published a book called The Christian in Complete Armor, basically expositing this passage. And it weighs in at 1,300 pages. Originally, I included the subtitle of that book in here, and I had to cut it because of word count, basically. The subtitle, I don't even have time to read. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, preached 26 passages on this. And so we could spend weeks. Today, I'm just going to be scratching the surface. Uh, what I'm praying for is that this will be a fruitful scratching of the surface. I pray that all of you would, including me, would just say, there's so much here uh, I, I need to study this more. God, would you give me an appetite to delve deeper into the equipment that you've given us? It's almost like we have to look at each one of them and say, I could spend a week, I could spend a month meditating on this one piece of equipment. And look at how God has given us like six pieces of equipment here. We need to know our equipment. So today's going to be very unsatisfactory. Today's going to be just very introductory. Uh, if you're frustrated at the end of this saying, I need to know more. That was just like, that wasn't enough. Praise God. That's my goal. My goal is that you would say like, we need to know more about this because this is actually important. And so let me just describe to you, uh, and I've changed this from when I preached this before. I used to say that there's only one defensive, or sorry, uh, one offensive piece of equipment here. Today, I'm going to argue that there's actually two offensive pieces of equipment. Four defensive and Actually, one is kind of in the middle. Well, the first one that we're going to deal with is like, I don't even think it's offensive or defensive. So strictly speaking, three defensive, one kind of who knows what it is, and two offensive pieces of equipment that we can use in battle. Was that helpful? Was that clear? No, okay. <laughs> Here's the first piece of equipment. This is the one that I don't think fits in either category. 
Paul says in verse 14 to put on the belt of truth. Ephesians 6.14, he says, put on the belt of truth. And here's why I mean it's kind of strange. Is a belt offensive or defensive? Like, it's neither, right? Everything else Paul mentions here, you either use to defend yourself, like the shield, you raise it up when you're under attack, or the sword, you actually use it offensively. The belt is neither. The belt is, you don't attack, it just holds everything together. And you have to picture a Roman soldier or an ancient soldier wearing a flowing robe and going into battle. And one of the things you realize is wearing the gear that they would have, and you've got a sword, you've got a shield, you've got everything there, is one of the things that you really need is a belt. Because you've just got to, like that robe has got to get out of the way. And uh, it's got to be held together. And here what Paul says is, what is the thing that holds us together, that keeps the, the robe from tripping us up, that holds kind of everything together, he identifies it with the truth. What he says here is, the thing that's going to hold everything else together in this uh, armory is a belt. And where he gets this from, I think, is from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, which says this, of looking forward to Jesus, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. In other words, Jesus is going to be characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. That's going to be the thing that holds everything together. Now, what is Paul saying here? A lot of, uh, when I preach this before, I preach like the truth of God's word is so necessary. I actually think it's a bit broader than that. You can go that direction if you'd like. Uh, The word of God is so, we're going to return to that this morning. The word of God is so central to everything else here. But I think what I think it's broader than that. When you think of Jesus uh, having righteousness as the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins, I think what it can be brought into truth in general. Satan's agenda is to murder you. What is, do you remember last week what, in John chapter 8, what Jesus said the primary weapon that he uses is? Lies. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He tries to defeat us with lies. And here are what Paul begins with is, we've got to put on a belt of truth, because the primary uh, offensive weapon that Satan uses to attack us, to kill us, is lies. Our culture is full of lies. Our culture tells us, you've got to be true to yourself. Our culture tells us the answer to your issue is that you're not fully expressing yourself, that if anybody tells you to not express yourself, that you've, got, that is, you've just got to rebel against that. You've got to say, don't squelch my truth. Like, I've got to live my truth. Culture tells you, you've got to look deep within for meaning. Now, friends, I've looked deep within. You know what I found inside here? Nothing encouraging. Like, the deeper I look within myself, the more depressed I get. Honestly. And that's not putting myself down. That's just saying, the answers to my problems are not inside. What what our society is telling us right now will kill you. And every generation has a set of lies that we're tempted to believe. And Paul says, we've got to put on the belt of truth. You know where the tr- what Paul would say that one of the truths that we need to understand now? Do you know where hope is found? Not by looking within, it's by looking to Jesus. Do you know where to find meaning in life? Not by fulfilling yourself, but by actually giving up yourself for the sake of his renown. You know where freedom is found? It's actually by taking up the cross 
and following him. That if you want to gain the world, you've got to, you've got to lose your, you've got to die to yourself. Another area of uh, lies, I think, is uh, I was talking to a group of pastors this week and saying, man, we all struggle with sin. We, we really do. I heard a number of years ago a pastor talking about a, or actually writing about a sensitive topic and just saying, I used to actually say to people, like, are you struggling with this sin? And he says, I've switched it to say, not are you struggling with this sin, but our, our temptation, but he's actually switched to saying, how are you struggling with this temptation? Can we disagree that all of us are struggling with temptation right now? But you know where, what I'm tempted to do when I'm struggling with temptation? Hide it. And part of, I think, living in the truth is dragging out the very things that we want to keep secret into the light so that we're just not lying about what's going on in our lives. How are you? I've asked some of you this morning, how are you? Do you ever feel like that is a complicated question to answer? Like, what do you want to know? Like, <laughs> do you, how long do you have? Like, and part of, not that everybody has to know everything about you, but somebody's got to know. We live in the light. We refuse to live in a world constructed of lies. John Mark Comer says this, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with a weapon of truth. The devil's primary stratagem is to drive the soul and society into ruin. This is his main thing, not just individually, but as a society, is to get us to believe lies to buy into deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. We live in a society where we're believing lies. Like, it's actually dangerous in our world today to say things that are truth. That is Satan's agenda, to get us to all to believe lies. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And so Paul says, we gotta put on the belt of truth. If Satan is gonna attack you, you need to just say right now, I am not going to live by lies. I'm going to put on the belt of truth. I'm going to discover actually the truth about the world that God has made. Where do we, what's the primary way that we find out the truth? We just pick this up and we just say, if God, like the old saying, right? Like this is just, if God says it, we believe it. Like this is just going to be like, if, if I struggle with something this says, I'm just going to assume the problem is me. Now we have to interpret it accurately. We need to understand it. But we just need to believe God's truth matters. As Garrett Kell says, again, not just the truth of the word, but the truth about ourselves. We just need to decide we're not going to cover our sins, but confess them. By the way, uh, I've always been struck by Tim Keller's comment that he says uh, a lot of us, when we're looking for leaders, look for the most charismatic, uh, the most forceful, the, the one that looks like a leader. He says, actually, what we need is, is we need leaders who are the quickest to repent, the quickest to own the truth about themselves. They're just like, when you point out a sin, they're like, I mean, not in a fake way, but just like, yeah, like, thank you for pointing that out. We need, we need leaders. The primary thing that you need, praise God for the elders God has given you, we need leaders who run to the cross, who are most aware of their own sin, who are the quickest to repent and turn to Jesus. And so Garrett Kell says, that's, what we, that's the truth, Right? We don't cover sins, we confess them. We don't slander, but we speak honest words about ourselves. Putting on an, the belt of truth is an act of resistance, an act of faith that resists Satan's call to be a liar like him. Satan wants 
you to believe lies. Refuse to believe lies. This is the belt that will hold everything else together. Refuse to settle for Satan's lies. Stop believing lies. Uh, believe the truth that God has revealed. Reveal the truth about yourself to others. Put on the belt of truth. I love the second. I'm going to combine a couple here, and I'll tell you why. I love the second one here. Second, he says, the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? The breastplate of breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to combine it with the helmet of salvation. Here's why. This comes from Isaiah 59, verse 17, that says this. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Again, this is, I think of these as defensive. Although in Isaiah, it's interesting that the uh, breastplate and helmet are for uh, vengeance. So there is a sense in which you could argue that even these are offensive. Now, Isaiah is talking about God protecting Israel from its enemies, especially Babylon. But Paul, probably looking at that Roman soldier, is saying, I think I can use that for, uh, you know, Isaiah. I can take Isaiah and uh, looking at that soldier saying, yeah, we need this breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Now, again, a lot of preachers have said, well, a breastplate. Uh, That protects, of course, the vital organs, and uh, you put it on here, and when attacked, your heart is protected. And then, you know, one of the things preachers love to do is go, and that means that you can't retreat, because the minute you retreat, your back is exposed. That sounds good, but actually the breastplate, as I've studied this week, covered the back as well, so uh, (laughs) there goes that point. But it means that you actually put on the breastplate of righteousness, that you're protected around your heart, your vital organs with righteousness. And then, of course, the helmet, the helmet of salvation. Well, what is Paul telling us? We need protection against Satan. uh, Satan is going to come at you. And what do you need at that point? You need a defense for your uh, vital organs, for your head. If he gets at that, you are dead. The question is, what is this righteousness and salvation that, is talk, that he's talking about? And we've already said it. I really appreciated uh, what's been said today. Uh, our, what do we need? We need a righteousness that can stand up to the attacks of the evil one. A lot of us would think, well, that means we have to be really, really good. We have to be really, really good. And then we have a righteousness that when Satan attacks us, we can say, yeah, but I'm really, really good. You know the problem with that? Can you think of the problem with that? (laughs) Satan comes against you. He knows. Do you ever hear, this is, one of his weapons is accusation. Has anybody ever here felt Satan's accusation? Satan comes, you've just sinned against God. Or if you're like me, you've got sins in the past that keep coming to your mind. Years old. Sins that Christ has long ago forgiven. And Satan comes against you and says, Do you remember when you did that? And you're so filled with shame. Friends, if we trust our righteousness of our own, it's a very easy weapon for Satan to come against because he can very accurately point out all the ways that you failed him this week. In the past, the worst things that you've done, he dredges them up and attacks us with those. Revelation 12, verse 10 calls him an accuser. One of the uh, methods of attack is that he is the accuser of our brothers 
who accuses him day and night before God. He loves to point out our flaws. And here's the thing, he's kind of right. He's kind of right. Satan can accurately pinpoint the flaws that we have, all the things that we've done to discredit our Savior. He knows our sin. And so when Satan attacks us this way, we need a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation that can withstand that attack. Our primary defense, friends, is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. He cannot attack that. As one preacher said, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, our integrity at best is but wax before the devil. Satan attacks with his accusations and he meets our own integrity and it's like wax. It's no defense at all. The more you grow as a Christian, by the way, I've actually discovered the more you're aware of your own sins. Have you noticed that? The holiest people I've discovered, uh, some of the people I look up to the most are senior saints. And you go up to them and you say, you just, like, there's a godliness that exudes out of you. And they look at you and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I just see my sins so clearly. Like, the older I get, the more I realize I need a savior. I just see my flaws. I just see how far I've got to go. And that's the irony of godliness, right? The more you grow, the more you become aware of how far you fall short of God's glory. Friends, we can't trust the righteousness of our own. If you're here today, if you've never trusted Christ, the message of this church is not that you've got to pull your act together and, and somehow make yourself good. The message of this church is Jesus has, makes us good. Jesus takes sinners and gives them, an it's called an alien righteousness, one that doesn't come from us. He grants it to us. It becomes ours. When God looks at us, he looks at us as if we were Jesus. Jesus took our sins upon him. He gave us his righteousness. Today, when God looks at you, Satan accuses you, and he points out your sins, and the Father says, I just see the righteousness of Christ when I look at these children. The song I know that you love to sing I love this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, if we're going to withstand the attack of the evil one, we've got to put on the righteousness of salvation of Christ. We don't have a chance against Satan if we trust our own righteousness. On an ongoing basis, Satan will do everything he can to make you a legalist. He will, make, he will take every action he can to pull you away from trusting in Christ's righteousness and begin to trust in your own righteousness. One of the main jobs that we have every week, and I love your church's vision, is, is to behold Christ. It's to look a, a, upon Christ and say, he is our hope. He is what I need. We need him every week. Uh, and if anybody ever says, like, when are we going to move on to something else? Like, never. Like, every week, we need Jesus. Every week, we need to put on his righteousness. We need to look at his salvation and trust in it and rejoice in it. So live in the truth. Refuse lies. Look at Jesus. Put on his righteousness and salvation. Third, the shoes of gospel peace. Uh, this is actually a very awkward statement in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, where does Paul get this from? Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful, 
upon the mountains of, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. Again, kind of weird to read about shoes of uh, gospel peace in the middle of a section on spiritual warfare. Uh, if you don't have shoes, you kind of know, I need shoes. Like, they're, they only really notice the importance of shoes when you don't have them. And here, it's actually weird to think of uh, peace, like a shoes of the gospel of peace in a section about warfare. Like, would a Roman soldier put on shoes of peace? Like, no, like, I'm going to spill blood. I'm going to battle here. These shoes are actually an offensive weapon. Uh, these are shoes where we take the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to tell more people about the good news of the gospel. We go to war against Satan when we share the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says that this piece of equipment probably has something to do with the imagery of Genesis 3, that there's going to be this battle where uh, between the uh, serpent who's going to strike out at the heel, and we've got these shoes of peace that we get to use to protect us you know, we're actually taking the gospel to people, bringing the good news. We know that Jesus is the one who crushed the head of the serpent. But in Romans 16, 20, Paul says something, again, very interesting. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Again, that idea of peace and violence, that the way that we achieve peace is actually through the defeat, the violent defeat of Satan. The violent defeat of Satan is actually the means through which we achieve peace. Friends, as we go out into the world. One of the privileges we have is in a secular city like Toronto, and it takes a lot of courage, is just to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, to live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ, to live faithfully. And by the way, that doesn't mean live perfectly. What that means is actually we repent a lot. It's, it, do you ever mess up at work? And you just say like, man, when I did that yesterday, that did not live up to what my I, what my God requires of me and own that, right? And somebody said, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, which is kind of like saying, like, tell somebody your phone number if necessary, use digits, right? It's like, <laughs> how does that work? At some point, we've got to actually say, we've got to act, but then at, at some point, we've got to say, when somebody says, why are you different? Well, you've got to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. You need to say, I'm different because... I just believe I've got no hope other than Jesus. Like, God is holy. We know God exists. All of us know God exists. We're, we don't measure up. But God has rescued his people through Jesus Christ. He's done everything necessary through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. As we go out into the world, as we tell people that we're putting on part of the armor of God. Uh, one of the reasons we planted a church in Liberty Village, I just... A long story, I'll just shorten it, but we're looking around this new community, which at the time was the fastest growing community in Toronto. There were no churches there. I was like, somebody's got to put on the shoes. I'm not the best evangelist. I'm not the best church planter. I had all kinds of reasons why I wasn't the person. Somebody's got to put on the shoes of preparation of the gospel of peace and go into this community and say, there is hope and his name is Jesus. As I did so, as we collected a team to do so, we were moving into enemy territory. We were waging battle against the evil one. Friends, that's what we're doing every week. We're putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace and just saying, God, would you use my life so that more people would know about Jesus? It's our job to show and tell the good news to everyone we meet. So live in the truth. Refuse to live by lies. 
Trust in Christ's righteousness, not your own. Share the gospel. Four is to take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, verse 16 says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Here's where uh, I wish I had a picture to show you, but you can picture this. Uh, the, we actually have historical records that say this was like four feet, uh, four feet by two and a half feet. And of course, remember that they're not going to battle alone. So picture a whole bunch of Roman soldiers together. And uh, if you watch, I think it's Gladiator or something, you can picture like the fiery arrows coming and the Roman soldiers are like, okay, guys. And everybody picks up their sword and they crouch down and they've got almost like the size of a door. And you've got a whole wall of just these massive shields there. And not just like a wall, but you've got multiple lines. And the flaming darts come raining down and the Roman soldiers are like, like bring it on. Because we've got these shields. And as, the, as they come over, they're just like, no problem, we're good. It was covered in canvas and calfskin. The edging would have had uh, iron on it. And uh, you just had a solid row of shields. Well, when would you be using something like that? Probably when you were close to the city wall. And the archers are on the top, have these. So you're attacking here. And the, sol the soldiers on the top begin to unleash this volley of, uh, uh, of fire to get you to retreat. Or the most vulnerable part of the battle where the enemy's trying to get the soldiers to fall back. And here... Paul is saying, we've got to take up these shields of faith. There's going to be a time when Satan tries to attack you. He will try to get you to retreat. He will lob everything at you. He will send rejection against you, persecution, doubt, suffering, accusations, temptations, death. He will get you to try to fall back. And what do we do at that point? We take up the shield of faith together, again, don't go to battle alone. Stand with God's people. Together, all of you just say, we've got this. What is faith? Faith is not this, like, if I have enough faith, I just need to screw up enough faith. I, if I believe enough, it will. No, faith is actually relying on God. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's who your faith is in. Faith is basically saying, I believe what God says is true right now. Every word, as Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What Paul is identifying here is when under attack from the evil one, we just have to say, at this point, I don't see it, but I believe what God says is true. And I'm going to stand with God's people and raise this shield. And as Satan tries to get me to retreat, I'm just going to say, I'm trusting God here. And as we do so, Satan will send his flaming arrows and we'll just say, I'm believing God. I'm not retreating. I just believe what God says is true. I, I've lived this. There was a period of four years where Shar and I were just, like there was no visible evidence that God's word was true. We were just being crushed. God's word was true. There was just no visible evidence of it. And we struggled through those four years, but by God's grace, we're not by our own strength. We just raised up the shields and say, we don't see it right now, but we just believe, even though we're not seeing it right now, God's word is true. We feel like everything in us, Satan is caught, wants us to retreat. We just believe that even though we don't see it right now, God's word is true. Raise up those, when under attack, when you're tempted to retreat, raise that up and just say, I'm banking everything on this. 
that God is my refuge. God can be trusted. I'm being attacked, but God's word is true. And finally, verse 17, uh, the sword of the Spirit. Um, This one's kind of easy. Paul gives us the decoder ring here. Um, Verse 17 says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The second offensive weapon mentioned. Uh, and this one is cool because it would have referred to the short Roman sword, uh, sorry, uh, the short Roman sword that would have been used for close combat. So this is something that you pull out when you're like, uh, like you're getting close, right? It's like, we're, we're going to be like a uh, couple feet away. That's when you pull out the sword. It's like, this is getting real here. And what Paul says this is, is the word of God, Scripture. And not, by the way, just Scripture. Uh, I love how uh, the, the Scripture is talked about by Scripture. It's quick, it's powerful, it's living. It is a sword. It's like nobody's ever seen a weapon like this. It's alive. This is unlike any other book. I love books. But there's no other book that is alive. There's no other book that courses with life. That I mean, God himself is somehow enlivening this word as a weapon to do what nothing else can do. And here, uh, as, Garrett, as Joel Beakey says, Satan cannot defeat a believer who by faith wields the promises of a Bible. Satan cannot defeat a believer who by faith wields the promises of Scripture. How do we do this? Well, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did Jesus do? Jesus himself, the severe son of God, pulled out Scripture and said, I'm going to wield this as a weapon I know that Satan cannot answer God's word. And so when Satan promises fleeting pleasures, we emulate Jesus by striking them down with God's word. When he he heaps shame and condemnation on us, we slash them with scriptural assurances. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation. Nothing. When we are threatened by Satan's request to sift us, we pray knowing that at this moment, Jesus is praying for us, that Jesus is interceding for us at this very moment. We just go to God's word. We live by God's word. We believe that God's word is life. We believe that it has everything that we need. Well, I told you this was scratching the surface. I was at this point of preparing the sermon and just going like, it feels like I've just opened the tap, like the fire hydrant and like, like we're all been blasted here. But here's what I want to notice. None of this is that extraordinary, is it? I used to think, as I think I mentioned last week, the attack of Satan would be like the exorcist with heads spinning and lights flickering and people vomiting, and it would be like this. And what Paul mentions here is, how is Satan going to attack you? He's going to distract you from looking to Jesus. He's going to get you to question God's word. He's going to question you to live by your eyesight and not by faith. He's going to get you to question. He's just going to, in the ordinary ways, he's going to get you to believe lies. The other thing I want you to notice here is all of this is about what God has done for us. If you notice in this passage, uh, by the way, Paul has no problem telling you to do certain things. Uh, He tells husbands to be uh, laid down, like (laughs) when I talk about the submission passage in Ephesians 5, it's like women get like, this much, and guys get like this much. And it's like, okay, women, by the way, do this. By the way, guys, here's your job. Like, die. 
like to serve your wife like Jesus did, right? So Paul has no problem like laying it on and telling us what to do. But do you notice in this passage what he tells us? Basically, look to Jesus. Jesus has done everything for you to win the battle. We don't come up with any of this weaponry. All this weaponry is weaponry from Jesus. All we do is we take it, we look to him and use what he's given us. If we try to fight with our own resources, we're defeated. But God has provided a way for us to take our stand against the enemy. And whether it be the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, Christians just simply take and receive what already has been achieved for them by Jesus Christ on his victorious cross. Jesus gives us the same top of the line heavenly equipment that he used and perfected while he battled for us on earth, defeating the evil one once and for all. It's almost as if Jesus wore this equipment and won the great deliverance for us. And uh, it's like the battle has been won. By the way, Satan is not, there's no danger of Satan winning this. He has been defeated fully and finally by Jesus. He's just in the last skirmishes. He's in his death throes. Like he's writhing on the ground, still trying to attack us. He's been defeated. And in these last moments of skirmishes, the battle is over, the war has been won. In these last skirmishes, Jesus gives us his equipment that he wore to defeat Satan and says, here you go. I've defeated him, just take it from here. Like he's lying on the ground writhing. He's been like, it's not gonna be that bad. Take what I've done, just use this. And as we use this gear that's been given to us by God, we can stand. And that's why Paul says, put on this armor so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he keeps repeating it, that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Friends, how do we survive this battle? Well, we gotta realize it exists. And then we've just gotta put on the armor and stand, take our stand. We just gotta look to Christ, receive everything that he's given us, live in that reality, together come back every week and say, I forgot this week, I need to be reminded of what Jesus has done. No, and then we just keep trusting Christ for the rest of our lives. Satan wants to destroy us, but God has given us everything that we need to stand. And so friends, live in the truth. Trust in Christ's righteousness. Share the gospel. Trust in God when attacked. And you will stand. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need in Jesus. We are very well armed. Father, thank you that Jesus has defeated Satan at the cross. We do not fear him. He is defeated. But Lord, we expect attack this week. As I said at the beginning, uh, Satan hates every believer. He hates every gospel-preaching church. He hates every Christian marriage. He hates every parent who's trying to uh, teach their child about Christ. And so, Lord, we expect attack this week. I pray that we would take up the resources you've given us and take our stand for your glory and also for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.